This is the Visible Hand, Special Job Market Edition. My name is Jordi Blanes y Vidal. My guest today is P. Mai An Nguyen, who is a PhD student and job market candidate in economics at MIT. Today we're going to talk about her job market paper, Long-Term Relationships and the Spot Market, Evidence from US Tracking, joined with Adam Harris. And welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jody, for having me. What is a relational contract? A relational contract is a relationship between you know, different parties that are not governed by you know, written contracts. So maybe both sides are not legally buying by certain terms, but then the prospects of future relationships is what help both sides cooperate. So I tell my students that a relational contract is not actually a contract because when people hear a contract, they think of a written and signed document that binds legally the two parties in a transaction. Here, uh, what you are saying is that a relational contract is a way of recreating the purpose of a contract through what is a long-term relation. Uh, yes. I mean, typically, as I said, like two parts of a transaction, you know, like a way to see this, like a, a common set of two parties in a transaction would be a buyer and a seller. If I am a buyer and I'm always buying uh, from the same seller, that will you know, put us in a long-term relation, that will be a relational contract. What is the alternative to sourcing, say, some goods through a long-term relation or relational contract? Right. So, I mean, one typical way is to have like a go to a spot market where you have, you know, you meet with new buyers and new, new sellers. I think in, in our setting, you have that as the alternative, but you can think also of other settings, say if you have uh, the labor market, you could have an employee contract, right, or an employee relationship, or you can also outsource it to some contract worker, for example. I think for, say, um, relationships between, say, upstream and downstream firms, for example, you can, in an industry context, you could, a firm could decide on whether to produce something in-house or outsource it to some other producers. So that could also be, you know, something similar to a, to a spot market. So if I am like a, a coffee restaurant and I need like a coffee beans, I can either go to Colombia, find a farmer there and tell the farmer that from now on you will be sending me the beans uh, every month and I will be paying you. We develop a long-term relation. That will be one possibility. And the second is that I go to the Chicago market, you know, for uh, standardized uh, commodities right. and I source my coffee from there. So yes. the second will be like the spot market. Yes, yes. So here, I mean, I, I'm starting by asking this because that's the title. That's the beginning of the title. But the, the objective of this paper is to study how, you know, these uh, two alternative governance mechanisms through which buyers and sellers can engage in transactions uh, have externalities uh, on each other. And the... Uh, Obviously, the paper is a, uh, an empirical paper, but uh, you mentioned that you, th this idea that there are externalities across these two types of governance relations comes from an old paper by Cranton in 1996. Could you describe what Cranton said and just generally the idea of these externalities? Right. So the um, conceptual idea is that there can be two-way crowding out effects between long-term relationships and the uh, spot market. 
So on the one hand, the spot market exists as the outside option of relationships, crowding out relationships by making relational incentives harder to enforce. And then the crowding out effects will be strongest for you know, relationships that have lower value. But on the other hand, the formation and the high performance of relationships and it results in a thinner and a likely less efficient spot market. So let's start with the second. Why would having less participants in a market, let's say that, you know, there is a spot market, but instead of being like the Chicago one, in which there are like thousands of sellers and thousands of buyers, instead of that, there are only 10 sellers and 10 buyers. Why would this much thinner a spot market be less efficient? Right. So you would think of there's some dimension of heterogeneity or mesh specificity when it comes to you know, matching the sellers and the buyers. So if you have more draws from a population, right, it's more likely that you're going to find someone to match with you well. So if I am sourcing a coffee from, from Chicago and there are like thousands of farmers there, I'm going to find somebody who has coffee that specifically matches the taste among the customers that I have. But in a 10 suppliers only, that will be harder. That's the idea. Yes. So that is the, the first type of externality. That is uh, how if there are a lot of uh, buyers and sellers who are engaging in um, long-term relations, they are leaving the spot market and therefore the spot market becomes uh, thinner and that's typically bad. So that's the, the first type of uh, externality that you suggest. Let's go back now to the externality from the spot market to the long-term relations. We have mentioned earlier that the relational contracts are not contracts. That is, there is no outside party that is uh, enforcing these contracts. Let's say a judge that they uh, make sure that both parties adhere, you know, to what is written in the contract. Instead, these contracts are self-enforcing. How does a long-term relation or relational contract become self-enforcing? How can it continue over time if there is no judge to make sure that both parties are adhering to, you know, the, the terms of this uh, verbal uh, relation. Right. So there has to be some value in, you know, continuing the relationship. And then let's say I can make this threat like this relationship is probably very valuable to you. If you don't cooperate today, I will end the relationship in the future. So that threat is what make you cooperate today. So here, the problem with having a good asset option is that now you know that the value of continuing the relationship is not as valuable anymore. So the threat is no longer that strong or credible. So just going back to the analogy of that, like a Colombian farmer that I contacted, if that Colombian farmer cannot easily go to Chicago and sell uh, his beans there, then he's kind of like stuck with me. And that means that he's going to be willing to cooperate in selling me every month, even if he has like some other outside options, because these outside options are not so attractive. But if instead the spot market works very well, then it's going to be more tempting for, for, for him to just terminate the relation and then just sell directly to the spot market. That would be the idea, correct? Oh, exactly. So this is what you call an externality. It's not really an externality. It's like just the, the logic underlying that relational contract, the self-enforcing nature of this contract. How does the externality from the thickness of the spot market to the sustainability of these long-term relations work? 
like we don't really call that the externality, but you can also think that like that is one cause of inefficiency because the contract that we have in our setting is not optimal for, for both sides. So one thing about this setting is that contract fixed rates, but not volume. So then that sort of limits the ability of the relationship to extract full surplus for both sides. So say what happened here is that when one side, you know, get the better asset option, I'm going to go with the better asset option and I defect from the relationship and that hurt the other party. So in a sense, you can also think of like my decision to go to the spot market, hurt my party, that is the kind of externalities, but we, we don't call that in, in, in the paper. So this paper, as I mentioned earlier, it's obviously on the title, is like a, a, an empirical paper. Empirical papers happen somewhere rather than in the middle of some algebraic set of formulas. This paper happens in the US tracking industry. Can you describe how the U.S. tracking industry work? What is the terminology and how does the spot market and long-term relations work there? Right, right. So we uh, focus on the U.S. for hire truckload freight industry. So for hire means that whenever a shipper, say a manufacturer or a retailers who need to ship goods from some origin to some destination, need that service, they would need to hire a carrier. Think about a trucking company. And truck load means that like a load will fill up the entire truck. So it's a bit, you know, a bit of a simpler problem than if you think of less than truck load carrier who have to combine different loads together um, to fill up the entire trailer. So the US for high truck load freight industry has two main components. You think of long-term relationships and the spot market, but most of the transactions are via long-term relationships. Actually, the total transacted volume is about 80%. And this is very big, right? And then we actually, this motivate our question. So if you see that a, a lot of the transactions are via long-term relationships, is it because long-term relationships bring about a lot of intrinsic benefits to the parties or is it just a um, coordination failure to form a fixed spot market? That is our, our question. For hire, essentially means not vertically integrated, right? Like yes. there are, these are two separate companies. Hmm? Right. The, the other thing that you mentioned was with respect to track load, which meant that the shipper is hiring the whole volume of the track, right? Like it's going to fill the whole of the track in driving from point A to point B. Is this a separate market as opposed to like not track load? Are these like two, you said it's a simpler problem, but I could imagine that there is a carrier that says, well, if you want to fill my whole track or you want to hire the, the whole track, you need to pay me 10. If you want to fill half of it, you need to pay me seven because there is a chance that, you know, like, like mm -hmm. it seems to me that it would be like relatively smooth for a carrier to transition between the track load setting and the not fully track load setting. Mm, okay. So I think two things. So with less than truck load, as I said, that the market structure will be a little bit different because you do need to combine loads. You actually rely a lot more on economies of scale. When you look to truck load, because you only need to move from one point to another, then you can be a company with just like one or two trucks, for example. That that's that's possible. So that's why like in the truck load setting, things are more fragmented. And now you ask like whether a carrier can actually operate between this 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 two. I think there's some of that, but maybe not much. So say a uh, truck load carrier, can, it can be quite convenient in that the shipper or like the side that needs you to deliver this shipment, you know, can prepare everything into one trailer and then you just go there, pick it up and, and leave. So it's, it's much simpler than, than less than truck load. So there's some separation between the two, but I can imagine that, you know, there'll be some companies that working more on the continuum of these two. 
So you said that long-term relations account for around 80% of the transacted volume within this market. The alternative is a spot arrangements, the spot market, because we said that we have defined this as a market that does not include vertical integrated shipments. So that's the remaining 20%. If I had the red Cranton's paper, the um, crowding out between the long-term relations and the spot market would make theoretical sense to me, right? So the way that you described it earlier, yes, it seems as if if there are a lot of long-term relations, the spot market is going to be thinner, that's going to be less good. If uh, the spot market functions very well, the temptation is higher. I, you know, intuitively already believe that these forces are taking place. Why do we need to put a number on how important they are? That's a good point. I think like, actually, you, you, <laughs> I think a lot of people, when I talk to them, they are not immediately convinced that there's a market thickness externality. So for example, you can have a very thin market, but if it's just like a commodity market where there's not a lot of heterogeneity or where like the mechanism is super efficient, then you, you may not see this, you know, market thickness externality. What is the case in the spot market is that it's not a super centralized spot market, right? So like parties that go to the spot market would still have to engage in some social hackling behaviors. And that is where the inefficiency comes from. And maybe there's a link between the thickness of the, of the market and the efficiency of the market. I think that maybe it is helpful to introduce, to get a little bit more specific about the terminology that we are using here. The, the spot market, the way that I understood it prior to reading this paper, was a setting in which there were already a very large number of uh, parties on both sides, and also a setting in which um, the parties on both sides of the transaction were pretty homogeneous. In other words, by definition of how I understood a spot market, there was no relation between being more or less thick and how efficient it was, because they were all homogeneous agents. There were already so many that decreasing them was barely going to make any difference. Here, the way that's what you're interpreting so spot market is of a scale, right? Like the spot market will be at one extreme, but there are other relations in which I go to a market, there, are, there is more than one potential supplier, let's say if I'm a buyer, but I need to engage in certain search, haggling costs. I may not get exactly the good that I want. It's not exactly the ideal version of a spot market, correct? And there is where how, how close I am to the ideal or not is going to influence the, the efficiency that I get out of this arrangement. Yeah, I think let me make it a bit more concrete. So the heterogeneity actually comes in the, you know, the flavor of space and time, right? So say you as a shipper, again, like the demand side, if you want goods to deliver from some origin to some destination at a particular time, that may not match very well with the remaining network of my truck movements. So with that example, it tells you that like, yes, if you think of like the total thickness on a land over a month, yes, you see a lot of, you know, transactions. But if you look into like particular hour, particular time on this particular location to location, then, then all markets to some extent are quite thin. Okay, just continuing with uh, how these arrangements work, uh, specifically in the U.S. tracking industry. How do these uh, relationships form? That is, is it the case that 
I've been working with somebody for 20 years and therefore I continue with them? Or is there some other way in which I can, you know, like uh, get partners on which I engage in long-term relations? You know, if this was like the the dating market, right? Like, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, is there some type of website where I can go to uh, find uh, long-term relations or maybe short-term relations, you know? How does this work in the U.S. uh, tracking market? I think this is also like one of the benefit of a paper is that we do have some insights into the formation of relationships. So what happened is, again, say you a manufacturer, you a retailer, you have demand of shipment on this particular origin destination pair over, say, one or two years. Then you can either, you know, always go to the spot market for each shipment that you have, or you can choose to form this long term relationships. And it starts with you sending out requests for proposals to different carers. The carers will then submit in bids on this contract rates for each load that they will um, charge, um, that we will deliver for you in the future. So in thinking of this formation process, you could think of it as a procurement auction. Once you get all of the bids, you, you get to select your uh, set of favor, uh, favorite carers, and then you put in them into uh, what is called a routing guide as a way of you know, sending out offers to these carers in the future. You say that we can think of this as a procurement auction. Mm. It's actually a procurement option, right? Like in that I'm a shipper, I ask for bids, I receive the bids, and then I choose the best bid, right? So I think that, I guess that the main difference will be here is that I am not obliged to choose the bid with the lowest price. That is, it is possible that, you know, there is a, a carrier that has a slightly higher bid, but maybe for whatever reason, I prefer that carrier, right? Other than that, it's absolutely an auction, no? Well, I mean, like there can be some communication, uh, more communication going on in the setting. For example, I have to communicate, you know, my preferences, my needs, how it match with yours. But yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an auction. Uh, how does the spot market work here? The spot market has multiple components. You can file lots, you know, could just be word of mouth. There are some digital matching platforms, but their share is, is quite small, let's say 5%. Then you have the dominant electronic load boards, which is just a marketplace where shippers and carers go there, uh, post their demand and supply. So, you know, these this are the loads that I need to be delivered. These are the trucks that are available and uh, such for such you know, posts and, and trucks. And our data from the spot market actually come from the dominant electronic load board. Going back to the to the long-term relation, I am a shipper. I ask for bids. The bids are for what? What is it that the carriers are bidding out on? Is it the, the price? Uh, is it the volume? Is it the length of the relation? What is it? Is it the quality, the, the quality of service? What is it that they bid on? So they bid on a fixed contract rate for each load that they will deliver for the shipper in the future. So, you know, this is the, I think this is quite uh, a unique and interesting feature of the setting that the contracts just fix the rates, but not the volume. By rates, you mean prices, just to be clear. Yes, yes. Um, they fix the, the, the prices, but not, but not the volume. So within the interactions, what happened is that the shipper uses a transportation management system to manage all of the offers to the carers. 
to say if you're a shipper, now you have a shipment, you send this details of the shipment to the software, and then this software is going to make offers to these carers in the order of their ranks until someone accepts. And you're the one as a shipper to decide, you know, how you would rank these carers in the software. I know that there are, you know, several carriers, but just focusing on the primary carrier, which is the, the one who, let's say, won the bid, I mean, won the auction, okay, uh, to start with. What you mean by offers is that I, you know, I have already developed the relation, the verbal agreement, okay, with this primary carrier. And then I have like suddenly a, a truckload that I need to, you know, get sent somewhere. What you mean by offer is that I make a request. They're like, okay, we agree that you were going to send it. Now, you know, take the truckload and send it there, right? And uh, at the price that we agreed. It's not that I am making here an offer, but I am asking the, the carrier to follow that, you know, to follow the terms that we agreed on. Is it possible for the carrier to reject this? Yes. Yeah, so that is, I think, where it's interesting, why this feature is interesting, is that it leaves a lot of room for, you know, both sides to either take opportunistic behaviors or maybe actually mitigate such behaviors. So for, uh, actually, I'll take your um, suggestion on terms of the, in terms of the terminology. I think request is a, is a better word. So say when the shipper send a request, the carer get to accept or reject. So here, if the carer rejects, the carer face you know all the options as well, right? Like the carer can either go to the spot market, but maybe if the truck is not available that period or operational cost is too high, the carer may just reject because of the high cost. Then from the shipper side, the shipper actually also is not bounded by any terms on like whether I have to make this request to this carer or not. The shipper also can control this, like the number of requests or the volume to the particular carer, the primary carer, as you said, by reordering the order of the carers in this routing guide. So if I move you lower, you would receive way fewer requests, right? So on, on the one hand, you have this problem where the carer may be tempted to go to the spot market. But then at the same time, you have a mechanism for the shipper to mitigate this problem. So the shipper can say, you know, if you just keep rejecting my offer, uh, my request, I would lower you on this uh, routing guide. You, wanna, you, you will re receive way fewer offers in the future. And if the request or this volume is, is valuable to the carer, then you should think that the carer would cooperate more and accept more within the relationship. Just a couple of questions about this. The first one is, obviously, this is like a more hassle problem, right? Like the, the shipper makes the request. Let's say that the carrier does not accept it, maybe because there is this temptation out there from the spot market. The carrier is thinking, well, we agreed on a price of 10, but it turned out that if I go to a spot market, I can sell you know, my, uh, my trip uh, from point A to point B at a price of 12. So it's too tempting for me. I said moral hazard, and you say moral hazard in the paper, because the shipper is not observing that actually the carrier is cheating him with somebody else, right? So you know, that's a private information. I guess my first question is this type of like a mechanism of discipline that you were uh, mentioning, whereby the shipper can say, well, if I make three requests to you in a row and you don't accept them, then I'm going to downgrade you or you, I'm, you're not going to receive any more requests from me. Is this something that they actually verbalize in their contract? I, I know that the, the contract is it's not like a written and enforced by a judge, but is it something that they agreed on? They, they agree on in advance that you know three strikes and you're out or something like that, or is this somehow implicit in the relation, but not explicit, you know, in, in between them? 
Right. So in, in the communication process, they sort of have to set this expectation of the expected volume. So how much should you expect me to, to be able to accept the offers? So that, for example, you know, some, some of the part of the contracts also bake in some of the constraints on the, on the carer side, right? So for example, if my capacity is just this much, I cannot really accept more loads from you then sometimes those constraints are also input into the software that like, so maybe just don't send more too much, too many requests to this carrier. And then the second is that like, we, we really don't know whether, you know, they have this, the ship actually told the carrier that if you reject like 10 uh, offers, uh, requests in, the, in a row, I will lower you down on this writing guide. But what we know is that they care a lot about this rejection rate or like the proportion of laws that get rejected. In some of the, as I mentioned, like transportation measurement system, there are some tools for them to keep track of like the proportion of um, requests that are rejected. So in a sense, we know the shipper care about this statistic. The other question that I had, this is related to something that you mentioned earlier, was about the fact that there is a shipper that uh, in terms of like thinking with whom to engage in a long-term relation is going to set up, set up an auction and the shipper is thinking, okay, how much am I going to need over the next year or a couple of years? Now, a year or a couple of years doesn't sound like a super long-term horizon, right? Like, I mean, I, I don't know how often these relations, I mean, these shipments take place. But, but to me, when I think of a long-term relation, I expect something more along the lines of five to 10 years as opposed to one year. Mm, I see. So um, I can answer the question on the frequency of interactions. So like the median is you're going to have a request in every four days or to seven days. So in a sense, one to two years, you know, still allow you to have a lot of interactions. It is long term relative, given the fact that the, the frequency of the interactions within this horizon is so high. Yes. Okay. So you already mentioned this a little bit, but can you tell us about what is the data that you have? Where does it come from? What is it that you can observe in your data and so on? Right. So I think I mentioned earlier that like there are long-term relationships and the spot market and long-term relationships have, uh, are very well organized. So there's a that's auction process and then also this transportation measurement system that keep track of all of this, you know, request sending and acceptance, rejection decision. And also like the shipper will input in the ranking of the carers into the software. So the great thing is that we do have access to data generated by such a software. So we see all of these interactions, right? We see the details of the shipments, when they are sent, whether the carer accepts or rejects, and whether the shipper, what we call is demote, meaning that you move someone from the top rank position to a lower position. Do you observe the bits? Right. So we don't observe all of the bids, but we want to see the bids of anyone who got onto this routing guide. So, so the, the main winning bids you observe? Yes, we, we observe the winning bid. We observe maybe, you know, second, third, fourth, best bids as well. So all the winning bids, then these prices at which we are informally contracting uh, and then everything out about every shipment, correct? Yes. Yes. Anything else from the long-term relation transport? management system side? I think that that's about it that we have for long-term relationships. And then we also have complement with data from the spot market. But here we, you know, we don't get to track individual shippers and carers within the spot market. But what we see is summary statistics at quite fine temporal and spatial granularity. 
So we see the average spot rates each week on a particular land. So here, the, the data that we have divided um, the U.S. into 135 key market areas. So we see a land as a uh, pair of key market areas. And we also see the, the volume on that land. Just to be clear about this, we have been talking throughout as if there is a market for uh, for hire, track load, this and that. But I mean, important thing here to consider is that there are a lot of markets uh, in the in the U.S. and a market is defined by like a, what you call a lane, which is uh, a route from point A to point B. I don't know something like New York, Boston. That would be a market. Obviously, that's not going to be the same market as. Los Angeles, San Diego, right? That would be something completely different. This means that from the spot market perspective, you observe really very little. You observe only the, the price, the spot market price. The only thing is that you observe the spot market price, but separately for each of the markets. And that's obviously going to be really helpful, but you don't know anything about how many people are there, who is contracting with whom and so on. I would mention that, like we also observe the thickness of the of the spot market and the volume. Correct. Yes. Yes. So the, the number of transactions you observe. I think I think this is this is um, I should highlight this that like the ideal data set would be that you you know you get to track individual shippers and carriers it, both within long term relationships and how they how they operate on the on the spot market. So now we don't have that, but we can still somehow try to connect these two data sets. By seeing how the behaviors within relationships change when you know spot market rates and volume changes. Obviously, this is afterwards going to become like a really complicated structural model, this and that. But you have a set of descriptive findings that provide you with a, a rational or an excuse to create a model in the way that you do. What are those descriptive findings? Right. Um, I should. Also mentioned that we uh, have a first paper uh, about this setting that focused a lot on you know the nature and mechanism of relationships. So in there, what we established is that yes, so in this setting, the relationship between shipper and carrier take a relational contract form. The carrier has the temptation to go to the spot market, and that creates a moral hazard problem, as we discussed. And then the shipper can use this threat of demoting the carrier lower in this writing guide in order to induce more incentives for cooperation today. So that's the first set of facts. And then we have to also establish some things that are going to become the key trade-off in the paper. So when you engage in relationships, you can generate some mesh specific gains. Um, and then the externalities of relationships is that it makes the spot markets thinner and less efficient. This first set of facts is to say that, you know, should we expect that there'll be mesh specific gains and how large are these mesh specific gains should we, should we think? And then the second fact is to say that maybe there's a link between thickness and efficiency in the spot market. The first set of facts is to say that there are some mesh specific gains in this setting. So on the shipper side, we see, we see that the shipper does not necessarily choose the carrier with the lowest bid. And sometimes you choose someone with a higher bid because you care about other characteristics as well. So let me let me just interrupt you here. So when you talk about match specific gains, that's a very abstract concept. But what you're saying is, if I have an auction in which I ask some people to bid, and I often select the uh, carrier that does not provide me bids with the lowest price, that must mean that somehow there are other dimensions of that carrier that I like, right? Because otherwise, I will just go with the lowest price. 
that's what you call a match specific gain. That is the benefit that I as a shipper get from specifically hiring that person who uh, I know well or happens to live close by or whatever, or has trucks that fit my specifications, etc. Right? That would be the, the concept of a match specific gain. Yeah, I think maybe I should give people a sense of, you know, what are the match specific gains in this setting. So first, as I mentioned, like planning is a very important part um, of this industry. For the carer, you want the network to be very well aligned with your remaining network of truck movements. For the shipper, really, you you want to make sure that you have, the carer is reliable. And then reliability here doesn't only mean it's not only doesn't only mean that um, you want le- uh, goods to be delivered on time and damage. It also means that you want the carers to be available when you need them. There can also be some, you know, gains that take uh, that has the sense of relationship-specific investment, right? If you know that you're gonna have a lot more interactions in the future, you could have could invest in a good insurance policy, good communication, a payment channel. You would get more efficient as uh, loading a docking, and some of this can be match-specific in the sense that, like, you know, carers vary in these dimensions, and then the shippers may care about these different dimensions differently. It's also like a question of whether they these are match specific, you know, or is it just more like a vertical quality dimension? So we think that they are match specific because if you take just for example, like just take one carer in very different relationships and you you see them behave very differently or how they respond to the spot market are very different. So we think that they are match specific. This is obviously a hypothesis that these things are important, but we know that they must be important from the fact that you mentioned earlier, which is that other things other than price matter. What is the second fact? So the second fact is that there may be some link between the thickness and efficiency of the spot market. So the fact that we establish is that on a thicker lens, lens with higher market volume, you tend to see a larger share of spot transactions. So the hypothesis is this, that say if the lens are really thick, you have some potential to have a thick spot market and the thick spot market is more efficient, then you also see more people you know, going to the spot market. That makes sense. Okay, now, obviously this is very complicated, but can you give us like an idea about what are the elements of the, of the model uh, in terms of what are the main strategic decisions? Who are the players? How they relate to each other? What are the strategic decisions that they take? And so on. So the, we have the shippers of the demand side, thinking of, again, manufacturers, retailers. You have the carers on the supply side, thinking of trucking companies. So they can either engage in long-term relationships or go to the spot market. So the way we model individual relationship is that we want to capture both the formation of relationships and the interactions within relationships. The formation will be an auction where the carers is going to bid on the contract rates and then the interactions within the relationships will be a repeated game. Um, and we also allow these individual relationships to interact with a spot market. They interact in two ways. So first, you know, care within the relationship can either accept a load, right? When there's a shipment request, they can either accept it or reject and go to the spot market or reject and remain idle, maybe because cost is too high. So there, the spot market creates a temptation for carers to reject the load. But then the spot market also serves as a clearing mechanism because the loads that are rejected within relationships need to be even few in the spot market. That's one channel. The second way in which the spot market interacts with long-term relationships is that the equilibrium volume in the spot market and the spot market thickness will determine the search cost in the spot market. So if the carer goes to the spot market, they has to incur the search cost. Then if the search cost is high, that makes going to the spot market less attractive to the carer. Obviously, the model is uh, mirroring 
the actual functioning of this market, right? Like the, the mapping is actually quite strong. So first of all, there is this procurement option in which a shipper asks for bids, then a, a primary carrier is selected, and then there is like a flow of a request that the shipper is going to be sending. And then the carrier at every time says, is it worth accepting it and then getting the rate that we agreed, or is it better to not accept it, then I go to the spot market and I find somebody else there to sell my capacity to. You are saying that this is like a, a, lo- a long-term problem, of course, but I presumably this is like an infinite horizon type of problem because otherwise, if I am the um, carrier and we have agreed on two years of our relation and there is only a week left, then I, I, I don't really have any type of discipline left on me you know, provided by the shippers. And if we start thinking backwards, everything is going to unravel. So this is, you model it as a, as infinite horizon. Yes, very good point. And I, I would say though, that is like, um, even though, you know, at the beginning of the contract period, you write down some effective dates for the, for the contracts, but we know that in, in practice, uh, a lot of the time you just extend the contract. So here, if you think of it as, an infinite game with a random stopping time, where like if the time of the next auction is random, then you can also still think of that as an infinite game. What are the equilibrium conditions that you derive from all this model? Right. So I think another part, like we're trying to capture um, the mechanism in the setting is that the fact that the shippers actually use the threat of demotion to create more dynamic incentives. So now we know that the carer in you know, making a decision also take into account the uh, value of continuing the relationship and how likely you, you get to continue the relationship. So the first set of equations relate to the carers making decisions within this repeated game. Like when I accept a law, when I accept to go to the spot market, when I uh, reject to go to the spot market, I reject and remain idle. I have to weigh in like, you know, what I have in this period and versus like how would that affect my my relationship in the future? So that's the first set of um, equilibrium. And then we're going to take uh, equilibrium conditions and then we will use that to get at all of the carers um, primitives, including, you know, what is the cost of de- delivering a load, like the distribution of cost? And then um, what? how much is the match specific gain in this relationship, the part that is not shown in contract rates? And then how much is the such cost to go to the spot market? So that is, we use the repeat games for the carer side. And then now we know how much the carer value the relationships. Right, then we look at their bidding behavior in the auction, and that will reveal to you how much the shipper value relationships with the carers. By bidding behavior, you mean here, what is the choice of the shipper conditional on the bids received? Yeah, so like the shipper selection and also how the, you know, the carers bidding is sort of in response to how the shippers choose the carers, right? Uh, the anticipation from the carrier side. Yes determines their bids. Therefore, the bids can tell you about what they know are the benefits of the shipper of matching with each of them. Yes. Was that the second uh, equilibrium condition? So the first set, again, the carers primitives, the second, like the bidding behaviors and the shipper selection of the carer will tell you the match specific gains 
on the side of the shipper, we also have a market equilibrium condition to pin down, you know, what are the underlying accurate demand and supply factors. And that will be important for the counterfactual analysis. So when we consider, you know, alternative market structure, we're going to say that, let's say we fix the de- underlying demand and capacity of the market, what would be the better way of allocating loads between relationships and the spot market? The market claim conditions and the pin that down, and that comes from how price is pinned down in this market. You mentioned at some point in, in several places, in fact, that the model is fully identified or the steps of identification. What does that mean? What does identification mean in this context? Does it mean that you are using the variation that you observe in the data along some variable to tell you about some parameter that you want to estimate? Or do you mean it in the reduced form sense of, you know, this is like exogenous variation that allows us to estimate this causal parameter? Mm, so I think it, we mean it like without struct- the structural model that we built, we can actually quantify all of the parameters in the, in the structural model with patterns that we see in the data. What are the steps of identification that you use to estimate all these things? Okay, so the fundamentals that we need to identify in this model include the cost of the carers just from operating, the search cost if you go to the spot market, the unobserved match specific gain of the carer, and then the match specific gain of the shipper within relationships. So I'm, I'm going to try to unpack this. So the key data patterns that we use is the carer's tendency to accept votes within relationships as the spot rate varies. Right. So if you think of a relationship as being very valuable um, to the carer, you will see that the carer should not be very responsive to the spot market. Or like when, only when spot rates becomes very high that the carer becomes sensitive to the spot rate. So that sort of margin allows you to trace out the value of the relationship to the carer just by the temporal variation in spot rates. And again, like we know the fact that like contract fix the, the rate. So the re- residual gain to the carer would be that match specific gain. So that's one piece. The second is that we also need to identify the cost distribution. So you can think of it this way that, okay, so now you look at the relationship and you look at the part where carer's tendency to accept is not very responsive to the spot market. Then within that range, what the carer is deciding is between um, accepting or remaining idle, not operating. And the reason for rejection there would be because my cost is too high. So that's like you have two pieces of information, like at which point you start to be responsive to the spot market. And then if I'm not responding to the, the spot market, then how likely do I accept? So those two pieces of information is enough for you to pin down, you know, what are the gains, relative gains between relationships and the spot market versus the gains from not operating, which is going to give you the information on the, the cost distribution of the carrier. So that's the first part. Now, we also need to pin down the link between search costs and the thickness of, of the spot market. And then basically for there, you, we run a regression, right? Like we recover some cost and then we're trying to see like how this cost vary with the thickness of the market. The problem is that market thickness is an equilibrium object. So you would need an instrument for that. And the instrument that we use is the predicted trade flows across different states of the US. So that's a demand shifter. It should not be correlated with any unobserved cost differences. So there you have the link between such cost and market thickness. Then now, as mentioned earlier, we know all of the primitives on the CARA side. We know how much the CARA value the relationships. Then in the CARA's bidding, bidding behavior, you see how competitive are they bidding. And that would tell you 
again, as you said, how much the carer know about the, the, the benefits of the relationship to the shipper. And that recovers the shipper's mattress again. After you have estimated all these things, was Cranton right in that these forces are quantitatively important? I think two things. So for the first direction, we actually know exactly you know, what kind of relationships get credited out by the spot market. So let's say if you are a relationship that have very high value, to begin with, you're really not too prone to the spot market. But also in cases when spot rate gets too high, the fact that relationship is very valuable make relational incentives work better. So in the first direction that Cranton mentioned, we know that the spot market grants our relationships, but in particular, low value relationships. On the second part, where we know that the formation and uh, you know, the hypothesis is that the formation and performance of relationships results in a thin spot market, then here we quantify that, yes, such costs tend to be higher on, um, on thinner market. And we know exactly how much. So here, if you say you double the volume on a land, we say 500 mile uh, long, you will reduce such cost by, I think, an amount like 35 cents per mile. And that is very big because if you think of mm, spot rates is around $1.5 or $2 per mile. And comparing to cost, then that reduction in such cost is really like 30% of um, operational cost. Any other like a estimate that you want to emphasize? That Yes. So uh, again, like the trade-off is that on one hand, you have the relationships creating that externalities that is big. But then also we quantify that the value of the gains from relationships are also really big. So for the shipper and the carer, the premiums that they get from relationships, you know, inclusive of the match gains is like 50, um, about 60 or 10% higher than um, what they would get just going to the spot market. So that trade-off is what we're trying to quantify in the current institution and in the alternative institutions. Another point I want to mention is that the current fixed rate contracts do a fair job at capturing the first best surplus, but you can do better. Right? So one way of doing better is that you let the contract rate be more flexible, you know, moving with market conditions. That will be one of the counterfactuals that you exactly. do? Yes, yes. So what we see is that like with fixed rate contracts, you only capture 44% of the sub, uh, first best surplus for individual relationships. So just to be clear, this counterfactual will be uh, as follows. Instead of the long-term relation being based on a fixed nominal price at which the carrier is going to transport the goods of the shipper, what they agree on is a premium or a discount over the spot price, spot market price, right? So that would be a more sophisticated contract. Now, clearly, with that more sophisticated contract, you are not going to do worse than with a coarser contract. Right, because you can always make that premium go to zero, right? So the question is how much better you do. And what what is the answer again? Right. So I mean, uh, comparing to that sort of first best contracts, the current contract is only forty four percent of the surplus. And the surplus here is you know how much you could do better than just going to the spot market. But I think what is interesting about this counterfactual exercise is that yes, you see that you have a lot of room to improve at the individual relationship level. But you, by making relationships work better, you also make the spot market thinner and less efficient, right? And then we're trying to quantify how much is this loss compared to this seemingly substantial gains. And you're saying that with a more sophisticated contract, the index price contract, because of this trade-off, there is not actually that much of a benefit. Yes, that's, that's what we see. What about the other counterfactual? The other counterfactual is motivated by this, you know, large um, externalities that relationships have in the spot market. 
So the other counterfactual is what if you get rid of relationships, you have the maximal thickness in the spot market, then for there, you see a much lower such costs on the spot market. And that helps those who go to the spot market. But of course, you lose all of these benefits from having relationships. And what we find is that because the gains from relationships are so large that if you centralize on transaction or you, you get rid of relationships, you're going to result in substantial welfare loss. Okay, uh, thank you, Anne, for coming to the podcast. Okay, thank you for having me. And thanks for all of the great questions. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discussed, introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan. <laughs>